I'm Michael Eisner, and welcome to Disney Sunday Movie. You'll have to excuse Mickey. Ever since he heard we were showing Flight of the Navigator in the Sunday Movie, he's convinced that a flying saucer has landed here at the Disney Studio, and some alien being is roaming the lot. Is this Pixar, or is this... This Hades costume is the stinkiest costume on this brand. <laughs> Babies are often very useless when you need to get things done. Take a puff. Do you fear Bing Bong is a sus individual. Mouse Madness listeners, you're listening to Mouse Madness. What are you going to do next? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod. Send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com or support us on Patreon by becoming a member of Jerry's Gang at patreon.com slash mousemadness. Uh, Kyle, I know that we like kind of mixing around our Disney coverage when we write these bracket topic ideas and we try and bounce into Pixar and we try and bounce into Marvel and Star Wars occasionally, but we just, we love coming home to Disney parks and the Disney company in general. Yeah, especially Disney history, the the history of the company. And we even, you know, this topic that we're talking about tonight is a very, what feels very niche to us. Like, why would we want to be talking about this? And so even before choosing it, we said, hey, why don't we, why don't we make it an option for Jerry's gang? Let's go ahead and throw it into the Jerry's gang poll. That's exactly what we did. And so last week we did a, we did the best high school musical number bracket, wrapped that one up. And that was the winner of the Jerry's gang poll bracket, but we had a tie. So this is the second winner of that Patreon poll. So if you want to get in on the polls, go ahead, join Jerry's gang $5 a month over on Patreon, patreon.com slash mouse madness. And they chose the most quintessential Michael Eisner move. Now, Chris, for the, those people out there, maybe we should do a little, little intro on who this Michael Eisner guy is. Michael Eisner was the Disney company CEO from 1984 to 2005. He was sitting in that director's chair for a very long time. Uh, in 1983, Roy E. Disney, who's the son of Roy O. Disney, was like our CEO right now. Ron Miller, the son-in-law of Walt Disney himself, he ain't cutting it. He's not, he's not doing it, and we got to get this boy out. And Roy E. had his eyes set on a couple of execs from Paramount, one of those being Michael Eisner, who then was like, I need my boy Frank Wells to come with me because I feel like I'm the creative guy and Frank is the business guy which Roy E. really liked because that's the same relationship that Walt and his father, Roy O., had, where Walt was the creative dude and Roy O. was the business guy. And so Eisner at Paramount had done such great work with their film division, uh, including some massive IP hits like Indiana Jones, that this is what Roy felt needed, uh, Disney needed as a kick in the butt for their struggling animation studio and their struggling parks at the time, to be honest. So Michael comes in and he comes in hot. He aggressively negotiated a salary that put him as one of the most highest paid execs in America at the time. He got his way to a 
$1,500 a year salary with a $750,000 signing bonus and 500,000 shares in the company, which he would then later sell off for like $600 million or something crazy like that. Um, After his first year, he earned a $6.8 million bonus and he just kept on keeping on. One thing to know about Michael Eisner and his his whole theory as to how to run these entertainment conglomerates was do it fast, do it flashy, and do it cheap. He would always take in these ideas, ask them what it would cost for them to do it, and he would slash those budgets. And that's just who he was. And that's who he that's how he was able to change the parks, change the animation studio, change everything about Disney so quickly. So uh, with that kind of level set in mind, we were able to find a bracket of 16 of these like quintessential Michael Eisner moves under the guise of this is who he is. He's quick. He's flashy. He's going to cut some corners, but he's going to revive the Disney company. And that's exactly what he did. So I'm super excited to talk about this because I've been knee deep in Eisner history for the past what feels like a month, live and breathing it. So I'm excited to talk about it. And we had to bring in our own resident Michael to help talk about the Michael Eisner moves. It is Michael Davis. Mike, welcome back. Michael Eisner could not be here today. So next Michael. <laughs> Imagine. That's where all of your Patreon money is going to is uh, we're going to get Michael Eisner on the pod. Get him on a cameo. Oh, that would be beautiful. Mike, how are you doing? Uh, are you are you a, an Eisner guy? Do you know much about Eisner? Do you, especially being a Walt Disney World uh, fan, that was a big focus of Eisner over the years. So do you know a lot about this guy? I wouldn't say I'm quite the academic on Michael Eisner, but I definitely know a little bit of Disney history and kind of some of the things he's done. Obviously, he kind of brought in the golden age of Disney animated films, as well as some of uh, some good things and bad things done in the parks, you know, but we'll sure. uh, get into that. Oh, yes. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. But before we do that, we got to talk about what we have in our hands and in our cups. Chris. What are you drinking for your spoonful of sugar this week? So uh, I went over to um, the local BevMo, uh, Bay Area-based alcohol chain BevMo, mm-hmm. and I got myself a drink. It's and it's one of those that that like sometimes a spoonful of sugar comes along where I crack it open and I just cannot resist taking a sip of it, but I but I managed to resist. This is this was not it's not a sour ale but it was next to the sour ales and it's called a uh, the Hermitage or Hermitage Brewery which is a Sacramento brewery it's called the Wild Goose Chase okay uh, Goose G E U Z E and I guess it's a type of beer okay um I googled it and it said it was the champagne of beers so it's supposedly very dry and very bubbly so um so let's let's get let's get it's also in this kind of like tiny wine bottle looking thing uh, so i don't know if i was supposed to pour it into a glass or not but nah. i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take it straight to the dome let's see it. it does look like a little champagne bottle i freaking love that whoa i love that so much whoa describe it to me what's going on over it's there? it like it's like when you eat a piece of sour candy and like your entire tongue just starts like salivating from the sides and the tip and like the bottom. It's like, uh, 
it doesn't have like a fruity uh, addition to it, you know, like, huh. you know, oh, let's do a, a lemon sour or like a grape sour. Like this is just straight up like essence of sourness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, but it is very dry, you know, and it's, it's, it's sweet without being sugary. You know, there's no like sugar added to this or like there's no flavoring. It's just straight up like probably the metal flavor from the from the big uh, vats mm. and uh-huh. mixed with it being a young like unripened uh it's from like unripened beer beer things sure. that they make i think i think goose is Bel- belgian yeah belgian goose is a beer is a blend of wine barrel and fodder aged beers with notes of lemon and tropical fruit so 10 out of 10 i might have to wow. I, might, I might i might be a guzman <laughs> Guzman. Uh, Kyle, what do you got? Oh, man. Well, Chris knows what I got because he happened to come over to my house this week so we could do a little Jerry's Gang double feature recording where we just released, uh, as as you've heard this, we've released one of the episodes. It was our Multiverse Madness review that we discussed, uh, a little Doctor Strange. And after that, Chris and I did a little special something for Jerry's Gang. And that required us to have a little drink in hand and so, of course, being Santa Barbara boys, I had to throw it back. So I've got the classic. I've got 805 lager in the hand. I'm really excited to have this fuel my Eisner rants uh, because I'm sure that there's going to be a few of them. Michael, what you got over there? All right, guys. I'm also joining in on the beer party. Mm. So it is getting nice and warm down here in Florida. So want to get something nice and refreshing. I have something from Wicked Weed Brewing Company from Asheville, North Carolina, I think. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Coastal Love Hazy IPA. Oh. Ooh. Like I can. Yeah, what do we got on there? Is this some sea stars or uh looks like some uh, a coral reef with a little lighthouse in the background, some waves, a couple oh. of fish. Give, giving some Nemo vibes. <laughs> Nemo's hot box ale. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's refreshing. Oh. Ooh. Might need a couple more of these. Oh, so. you're gonna need a couple more of those. I can guarantee that. At least it's refreshing in summertime. You got the summertime flow going. You are just living your best Florida summertime life right now. I love that for you. <laughs> Yes, sir. Florida, Florida man relaxes Florida in man. podcasts at the same time. <laughs> Florida man drinking Nemo's hot box adventure. So, uh, Michael Eisner, uh, sure, sort of a niche topic, but it's definitely one that a lot of people have opinions on. Totally. If they know their Michael Eisner history, their Michael Eisner trivia, and honestly, their Michael Eisner contributions to the Disney company. So, uh, we, we did manage to find a demographic. For this bracket, and we had to go up to him and ask them, hey, what is the most quintessential Michael Eisner move? Kyle, what was that demographic? We let the interns get out of the park this time, and we actually sent them to a baseball game. We sent them to a Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim baseball game, and they walked around that stadium, and they asked folks, what is their their most quintessential Michael Eisner moment? When they think Michael Eisner and Disney, what, what do they think of? And now you're like, hmm, why the Angels? Well, that's because Michael Eisner actually bought the Angels at one point in his tenure at the, as the CEO of Disney. And so we're going to be talking about that because that was obviously at the top of Angels fans' minds. And that made the bracket.
if that made the bracket, then what didn't? That's what we're about to talk about. What missed the dance? And for me, the biggest one is the Disney Cruise Line. Michael Eisner's whole thing when he showed up was to be flashy, do it on the cheap, grow fast. And part of his strategy there was, where are we leaving money? Where, where have we not been? And to him, it was the rest of the world. So from park expansions to stores, he needed to get out of America. And part of that was establishing the Disney Cruise Line. He was like, there's a whole tourist industry that we're missing out on. All we have to do is take the model that something like Carnival has been using for years and years, throw some Disney skin on it, call it a cruise line. And that's, and to this day, they're still making ships. I'm pretty sure, what, last year yep. we had yep. the, the first sailing of the Disney Wonder or something like that, So, uh, or the Wish. So the fact that it has lasted this long, people really obviously love it. Uh, and it made a big impact on Disney's overall takeover of the world. They've created an island, for heaven's sakes, in the Caribbean, right? So I think that is very Michael Eisner to find an angle that hasn't been found yet and try and dominate that market. So I feel like that missed the dance. Chris, what about you? Super sad to not be talking about DCL because I am a former yeah. Disney Cruise Line passenger Sure are. when I was... 13 years old, the, like the perfect Michael Eisner age uh, to do one of his creations. And uh, I would have liked to have talked about, it, but maybe on a, a future episode and I hope yeah. to get on another one one day. So some Mr. Dance for me, a uh, number one, the, the McDonald's deal, the oh, exclusive huge. Disney McDonald's partnership. Uh, now, Disney and McDonald's had a relationship uh, that dated all the way back to Walt Disney's days in the military. Dude drove an ambulance with Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. And to think that those two uh, served together and also built two of the most disgustingly large corporations <laughs> yeah, to ever exist on this planet is just wild to think about. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that was such a huge part of the way a lot of people our age interacted with the Disney brand was through that McDonald's deal. Um, and I mean, come on, I have to give a shout out to some of the nighttime entertainment that was created under Michael Eisner's tenure, namely Fantasmic, but more namely <laughs> Light Magic, baby. This is a production that totally uh, blew the standards out of the water when it comes to uh, nighttime entertainment, expanded the parade route in Fantasyland, and uh, the level of entertainment that we're accustomed to today. A lot of it's thanks to uh, some of those things that Michael Eisner put into place. Michael Davis, what are some Miss the Dance for you? So I only have one, and it's really not even too big a deal. And most people wouldn't even notice, but um, Michael Eisner is responsible for the removal of Mr. Toad's wild ride <laughs> from Walt Disney World. So now, if you're somebody like me, you have to go all the way to Disneyland to go through hell. Poetry, Mike, poetry. Yeah, that's true. And that, I think, is a, a one example that could be an entire bracket of it in and of itself when it comes to Michael Eisner. It's just Michael Eisner removing things. That's a bracket. And Mr. Toad from Walt Disney World, number one on that list for sure. All right, Chris, it's time. We got 16 that are worthy of us talking about this time around. The most quintessential Michael Eisner moves. Let's go ahead and cue that dramatic music. 
let's get started. We're going international with the number one seed. It's the Disney Parks Expansions. Putting the ink in Incorporated, coming in at number two is the Disney Renaissance. Hold on to your hats and glasses because the number three seed is the addition of Thrill Rides. Take my money because the number four seed is Disney Stores. You better get the five seed before it's gone because it is the Disney Vault. It ain't easy being green, but it's easy having green. Coming in at number six is the Jim Henson and George Lucas Partnerships. Coming to a video store near you is the number seven seed, direct to video sequels. He got that cake. Coming in at number eight are in park promotions. Leave room for Jesus at the nine seed, it's Videopolis. Who wants to play Hungry Hungry CEO? Coming in at number 10, it's Disney's Media Acquisitions. Move over, Mickey, because the number 11 seed is being the face of the entire company. Eisner called game. Coming in at number 12, it's Disney Quest. Crank up the gift giver extraordinaire machine because the number 13 seed is Disneyland's 30th anniversary celebration. Let me buy you a drink because coming in at number 14, it's Pleasure Island. The number 15 seed just won the Super Bowl because it's the I'm going to Disney World campaign. Get your head in the game because the number 16 seed and the seed that rounds out the bracket is Disney's pro sports ownership era. Michael, we've got 16 a very quintessential Michael Eisner moves. Um, this is There are some that could have made it. There are some that could have been seated differently. Uh, what are some of your actions when you see this bracket? Anything that you're looking forward to discussing? Ooh, there's a few. Love the Thrill Seekers, love park expansions, Disney Quest, something that just sparked nostalgia for me. So, and uh, yeah, you know, a little bit of sports too at the end. So oh, yeah. right, go. All right, well, let's get right into it. And we'll talk about the number one matchup, Disney Parks expansion versus number 16, the pro sports ownership. Now, the the idea of like the most quintessential Eisner move um, is an interesting one. And, and I want to keep reminding myself that we're talking about quintessential Michael Eisner move and not necessarily like best Michael Eisner move. And right. quintessential is a word that means like the thing that most well defines Michael Eisner's tenure as the CEO of Disney. So I'm going to be approaching this bracket by keeping that in mind. Yeah. But I really cannot wait to talk about uh, this pro sports ownership era of the Disney company history. It's something that we've kind of touched upon briefly at various points on this podcast. Um, but in general, I think it's a super overlooked period of Disney history, um, just because I guess maybe not everyone is a sports fan or was a sports fan, um, especially at that time. But uh, when people talk about the Eisner history, they often talk about, you know, parks and McDonald's and weird promos and stuff like that. But yeah. the pro sports ownership era of, of Michael Eisner's tenure as Disney CEO was a surprisingly successful um, endeavor for the Disney company. So basically, the way it went down, to, to kind of briefly summarize... This was uh, during Michael Eisner's Disney decade. This was kind of like his grand scheme for saving the Walt Disney Company from total disaster. Yeah. And primarily it had to do with parks expansions, but it had to do with 
other expansions as, as well. And so uh, Michael Eisner was trying to reimagine the Disneyland Resort and make it feel a little bit more like Florida, where it was maybe a multi-day destination. Yep. It was a place for families to do all kinds of stuff um, on property, off property, whatever. Um, and so he tried to develop a relationship with the city of Anaheim to kind of increase Disney's footprint uh, within the city. And at that time, um, I think it was the early 90s, 92, 93, something like that. The city of Anaheim had been trying to attract a basketball team, an NBA team, or a hockey team, a National Hockey League uh, team to uh, Anaheim. And they actually built an arena using right. taxpayer money and city money. So it was like... Would never happen just, today, I'll tell you that. That is the hardest thing for a sports team to acquire. Yes. Uh, in today's age is the stadium. And so th they had this stadium already built, completely empty, waiting to be filled by something. Um, and at the time, uh, allegedly, Michael Eisner's kids uh, played hockey, which inspired him to greenlight the Mighty Ducks movie starring Emilio Estevez, which we've talked about uh, several times on this bracket. We're big Mighty Ducks fans. And uh, so you had the stadium, uh, you had this IP of a hockey team and Michael Eisner was like, all right, this is like timing is everything in a relationship. And the, the timing was ripe for Michael Eisner to take the city of Anaheim up on this offer to create an NHL expansion team. Yep. At the, at the time, uh, the fee for NHL expansion was $50 million for the hockey club. And Chunky. to put that, to punt that into uh, context today, the Vegas golden Knights, uh, paid a $500 million expansion fee to the NHL. Uh, obviously the team was named the mighty ducks after the movie. Uh, but what was perhaps more interesting was the way that they executed the, the brand itself, creating the logo, creating the colors and naming the arena. Um, they left the logo creation up to a fan contest. Uh, and after workshopping several ideas, they landed on the arena being called the pond. Yep. Uh, they eventually sold naming rights to the Arrowhead water company and it was called the Arrowhead pond. And yep. so at the time th the pond was like laughed at and, and mocked as a name. But in retrospect, I think that's a great name. It was great. Fantastic the name. Pond. Because then at the same time you had the tank up North where the sharks played. So there was this theme of naming these arenas, not by sponsors, but by nicknames. And you know, you can't, talk about the Ducks in the 90s without calling out that they had to incorporate some sort of color of teal because any expansion team in the 90s across sports had to be teal. Uh, white, teal, and eggplant was the name of the purple color, which yep. um, just such a, such a great combo. Uh, the, <laughs> ducks, the Ducks, surprisingly, I think I said this on the best sports episode, surprisingly a competitive tenure mm -hmm. um, under Michael Eisner. They reached the playoffs within the first few years of being an expansion team, which is insane to think about just because of the way the NHL expansion draft works. Impossible to get any type of impact player generally um, when you do an expansion draft, but the um, Ducks struck it big with one of the all-time great American hockey players named Paul Correa, yep. eventually acquired Timu Solani from the Winnipeg Jets, uh, Phoenix Coyotes organization. Um, Jean-Sebastien Jaguer kind of was their, was their keeper um, as they eventually won a Stanley Cup. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was under the Disney ownership years, but they definitely made it to the Western Conference Finals at least once, maybe twice. Um, so they were definitely like a, like a staple in the Pacific Division, what was, what was once called the Pacific Division. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, the angels, it's a little bit of a different story just because like the ducks were created from the ground up by the Disney company. And actually fun fact about the ducks, uh, the inaugural season with Anaheim in the league, 80% of NHL merchandise was ducks merchandise. <laughs> just absolutely insane. That's bonkers. Um, like I said, very successful endeavor. Um, okay, Michael, our producer, Michael Davis, is telling us that the Ducks uh, were sold by Disney in 05 and they won in 06. So yep. um, the, the player development that took place under owner Michael Eisner led to that cup. We'll just say that. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the Angels, slightly different situation. The Angels had been around since the 60s. Um, they were founded by Gene Autry, former country star and actor <laughs> and uh, uh, former owner of KTLA, the broadcast oh, uh, outlet that still exists today. Uh, and so he was awarded the Angels expansion franchise uh, and eventually Disney. They had a relationship with the Angels for a while and Disney was a uh, minority shareholder or had a minority stake in ownership of the Angels. Um, but they eventually took over a majority stake after the passing of Gene Autry and and kind of took over the lead. And the Anaheim Angels did win the World Series under uh, Disney's ownership tenure. And mm -hmm. at the time that they took over, they were known as the California Angels. Um, but this was when Michael Eisner and Disney were trying to make Anaheim this destination. So they thought it would be a great idea to rebrand as the Anaheim Angels. Um, and here we are today where <laughs> we're, we're the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, where we can't make up our minds where we want to be from. But mm, yeah, they did win the World Series, um, which is great. Uh, they, uh, that's their only World Series win, I believe, mm, right? Yeah. 2002? Yep, that's it. Um, I just, I, w I, I, don't wanna, I don't really want to talk too much about the Angels organization, okay? I, okay. Just really hope, I just really hope we have some justice for Shohei, justice Wait. for Mike Trout, because those two, more than anybody, deserve another crack at the postseason. They're off to a great start. This could be are, a very, very good year for them, so... We shall see. Um, Rally Monkey, I think, is the only other notable thing that happened under Disney's ownership of the Angels, which was uh, a funny a thing. thing, I guess. Uh, there's a very famous Bower Sox home movie of me and my brother doing a Rally Monkey infomercial <laughs> because we thought it was one of the most ridiculous concepts uh, ever. Because it was. Uh, Rally Monkey, the Rally Monkey craze was insane. No. Nah. I really, really love this uh, era for the Disney company. I think it's a great idea and kind of lays the groundwork for multimedia ownership of sports franchises and sports as an asset of a larger media operation. Uh, so I, I, just, I just think it's a really important part of, of sports history, of Disney history, of entertainment history. I think it's so cool and so interesting. That being said, it's going up against the Disney Parks expansion, which was the head of the horse that was the Disney decade and just um, took the Disney Parks from a pretty awesome place for families to go to being what we know it today. Uh, mm -hmm. This was the stepping stone to being the, the total world domination that, that Disney has become. So I am advancing the Disney Parks expansion even though uh, I think there certainly is an argument to be made that this creative business choice by Michael Eisner to acquire these two sports franchises is somewhat quintessential. Yeah. And what makes it even more quintessential Eisner is that 
his son influenced the decision. And the son comes into play in other aspects of this bracket that we'll talk about, including the park's expansions. Uh, but him trying to find an area in which Disney hasn't put its hands in and capitalizing on it is very quintessential Eisner. However, with the parks, Disney had stopped caring about them after Walt's death. Really, that's what happened. Actually, after Roy O's death, they kind of were like, eh, now we don't really got to focus on Epcot and making it this prototype community of tomorrow. Like, we can do whatever we want because Roy and Walt are dead. And what are they going to say? Uh, Ron Miller was kind of syncing the animation studio and the live action studio. And that's where Michael wanted to focus on was Disney live action and the parks. He didn't care about animation. And so him wanting to expand the corporation first thing first by expanding their parks footprint is the most quintessential thing that Eisner can do in this matchup. So I'm agreeing with you. We'll dive more into like what makes the park's expansions even more Michael Eisner in the next episode. Uh, But Michael, do you agree with our choice here? 100%. I mean, the park expansions, it's just too much of a heavy hitter. I'm as big a sports fan as anybody. Um, And I'm, I'm an Anaheim Ducks fan too. So that's. Oh, are you really? Yes, I am. Wow. Had no idea. All right, let's move on to this next matchup. It's the number eight seed in park promos versus the number nine Videopolis. And I think that, Chris, when we talk about Videopolis, we're going to let, let's kind of let's tag team that. Let's talk about that because <laughs> that's okay. definitely something that we we really like. Uh, oh, on, I man. Think, it's, as a concept. It's the best. But I'll, I'm going to yeah. start with the eight seed in park promos. So Disney at the time, as I just kind of alluded to, uh, by the time Michael Eisner shows up, the parks were in pretty bad shape. Uh, they hadn't seen anything really new since New Orleans Square, since uh, Disney World's Magic Kingdom had opened, the new kind of version of Epcot had opened, and everything stalled out. Uh, they were creating bad movies. People were showing up to the parks, but they didn't have any sort of incentive to keep coming back. And Michael saw that as an easy area of expansion. And so he said, you know, what can I do to get people into the parks while we plan these expansions. And he came up with these ideas of park promotions. Uh, you hadn't really seen it a ton. You saw some of it in Walt's day with like date night at Disneyland where the park would stay open a little bit longer and they would have bands and stuff, but not to the extent of Michael Eisner. So Eisner comes in and says, how can we get the most out of what we have without spending as much as we need to? And so some of these promos are bonkers, which is kind of quintessential Eisner. He liked to have these flashy ideas, but without any real basis of how to get it done completely. And so the some of them are like Disney Afternoon TV and Disney Afternoon Avenue. So in Disneyland, while he's building Toontown, while he's expanding the park with the Critter Country and Splash Mountain and all of that, he puts together this temporary land. Now, by today's like Disney Parks fan standard, they would not allow a like temporary land to go up. And here he is taking up the space from storybook uh, land canal boats all the way down to Small World and basically overlaying any attraction that's in that area, but then also setting up temporary facades. And this was all in the synergistic, which is another quintessential Michael Eisner thing, 
theme of the syndicated TV shows. So not even the shows that they're making in real time, but shows that have been around and now are just on replay on Disney Channel and even ABC, like Tailspin, like Gummy Bears, like Rescue Rangers. And he's setting up meet and greets, the uh the phantom boat, the motorboat cruise that used to be in Tomorrowland is now motorboat cruise to Gummy Glen. And there's just a Epic. bunch of like cardboard wooden like cutouts of like the bears around. Uh, you got to meet up with Baloo in front of his dressing room. Like, <laughs> like the thing, it just nothing really made sense, which is an Eisner thing. It was just kind of plopped in to try and get people interested in coming to the park to see what it was. And that example is pretty later on in his like, we're going to expand where you need to get people into the parks with these promos. But the one that is just mind boggling is Mickey's Birthday Land in Walt Disney World, because this was a super temporary land that was really the test ground for Toontown in Anaheim. (laughs) But what was crazy about this one was that it was made to celebrate Mickey's 60th birthday in 1988. And the land was three massive circus tents. And the front of those tents were these temporary facades that were themed after like, oh, here is, you know, uh, Donald Duck's shop. And you would go into a big circus tent that was poorly themed, but the facade was just this like cardboard cutout thing. Mickey's house was actually constructed, but you had these like weird, weird fake storefronts that were obviously two dimensional, not like the stuff that we have today. Um, This ended up changing into like Mickey's Starland in 1990. It turned into Mickey's Toyland in 1995 so that they didn't have to rip it all out. And then lastly, it became Mickey's Toontown Fair in 1996. And these promos are just, it's, it's an attempt is being made, but you don't want to invest. And that's huge Eisner. And then I can't talk about promos without talking about WDW Castle Cake. Epic. It's so good. It's just so good. And this is kind of type of stuff they would never do anymore because people would get mad. Like, just do it again. I just, well, you know. Yeah. And the, the castle was made like a massive birthday cake at Magic Kingdom for Walt Disney World's 25th anniversary. When Lilo and Stitch came out, they teepeed the castle to promote Lilo and Stitch, get people in the parks, get excited about Lilo and Stitch. Uh, the Disneyland 30th celebration promotion was much bigger and is something else completely. So we're going to be talking about that separately. But then my favorite Eisner promotion, Eisner era promotion, is the X Games experience at DCA in 2003, which we discussed heavily in our 1.0 conversation. And this one definitely has Eisner's pause on it because he was very into the X Games uh, once he acquired ESPN, they even included an X Games section in the ESPN store, the first one that they opened up. So Eisner was very into the extreme sports. So these promos to get people in are just like so poorly thought out, so poorly executed, and yet they were greenlit and happened. And I feel like that's very Michael Eisner. It's up against Videopolis. Videopolis was a teen 
dance club that takes place in the Fantasyland Theater. What is the Fantasyland Theater today? And this place was, how do we connect with the MTV generation and get them to come to Disneyland? Oh, I know. A dance club. And the story of Idiopolis is amazing. I I, I think like... It's really important to hammer home that idea that this that this MTV generation uh, was a thing, and it's important. Like the MTV yes. aspect of it is important. You know, like people like us that were born after the peak of MTV, I don't think really understand how important that was to the development of the youths of yes. the late '80s um, and mid '80s, late '80s, whatever. Um, it was like a you know, they talk about the corruption of youth, you know, and mm-hmm. it started with the 1960s countercultural movement and hippies in Woodstock and then hit a second peak in the 80s with MTV. And I think it's kind of hitting a new peak with TikTok, but that's a conversation for another time. But um, it's the MTV was huge. It was yes. gigantic. And here's Eisner again, recognizing that there's an area that they can dip their little paws into and maybe make some money off of. And this is getting them into the parks, right? They need to revitalize Disneyland and here's a way to do it by bringing in this generation that if they show up and go to Videopolis and then walk around the park, maybe they want to bring their families, which they'll be having in the next 10 years to come to Disneyland. You've established this kind of brand loyalty. But here's the quick and fast of Videopolis again. You have something that from idea to opening only took 105 days to happen. And it was only done for $3 million. That is so cheap. That is so cheap. And most of that money probably went to the fact that there were 70 television monitors and two 12 by 16 foot video screens. And as you're there dancing, like any other nightclub at this time, the music videos of the songs you're dancing to are playing on these screens. They'd also have like live dance performances and like DJs and that kind of stuff. But it was a nightclub for what they felt the teen generation would want. With it came a lot of issues, perceived issues by Disney that they didn't want to have. They thought they thought that they were attracting gang life and they were very afraid of like the type of people that were going to be coming into Disneyland. They were very afraid of what they called homoerotic dancing and they put it in their rules that there was no homoerotic dancing to be had at Videopolis, which is in the era of this don't say gay bill and, and Disney seems like they they have a track record for this kind of stuff. So as you can tell, it didn't last. It reverted back to a theater and now they are here hosting, you know, Disneyland theater shows in this space. But I kind of wish yeah. that we had a Videopolis re- revival. You, um, I mean, we saw different incarnations of it appear. Mad Tea Party. Yeah, Tron, right. Electronica. Yep. Like this idea still gets kicked around occasionally. Um, so I wouldn't say it's entirely dead, even though the space is empty. I, I just would also like to point out that this is the second time that I have jinxed a no hitter live on the Mouse Madness podcast. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the John Carlos Stan just hit a two run home run. Oh, my goodness. Baseball beware. We're jinxing no hitters out here. Uh, in this matchup, I'm going to go with the park promos. I like Videopolis as a as an idea and as a concept that happened, but I feel like the 
the quickness of these park promos that Eisner put together and popped up and and f- forced these Imagineers to try and make happen. And then the lackluster review of them as people showed up is very indicative of an Eisner theme. Uh, you see it with a lot of his parks that he popped up, mainly Euro Disneyland. You see it with his films and his idea around films and animation and the direct to, D- or direct to VHS and the sequels and all of this stuff. Uh, it just feels like this knee-jerk reaction. How can we get people in or sell them on the idea of something new without creating anything new at, at all? Uh, it feels very money on the table. I'm Mike Eisner. I'm going to revive this company financially, maybe not creatively. So I'm going to go with the eight seed. Um. I am not. Uh, okay. Videopolis, as you said, is something, is an idea that we both just really like. Yeah. I mean, I have like uh, daydreams of getting all <laughs> of Jerry's gang down into Videopolis and they hit a little April shower trap remix and we're just, yes, oh, sir. oh, yes, sir. Sipping on some of that alcohol they now serve at Disneyland. And, yes, uh, sir. Come on, come on. That sounds like so much fun. It does sound like so much fun. And and one one little element you forgot to point out that in addition to showing music videos on the big screens that surround the the dance floor, they also pull a high school musical karaoke club and show uh, videos of the people themselves dancing, so dancing, you can see yourself yeah. on the big screen. Um, oh, I mean, there. I I mean, yeah, like it's cheap. It's a cheap operation. They actually borrowed. Uh, set pieces from the LA Olympic Games to, oh, you're to help right. kind of expedite this process. Um, and that's like totally an Eisner thing to do. But there are aspects of this that uh, I think had like a, a profound impact on the progression of hmm. the Disney parks. One of those being the attraction to locals um, and particularly local young adults. I yeah. mean, this is why this is the exact reason why they had to sunset the annual pass system in Southern California, there's just so many young people that want to come here. And it all started with Videopolis. Um, the Videopolis uh, theme song goes uh, so hard, by the way. <laughs> we're going to we're gonna have to play a little sample I was gonna of say, that well, right I'll, here. We'll go ahead and sample that pod. right now. Perhaps the most important thing that Videopolis did for the Disney parks, the first ever Disney parks churro. You're right. You're very right. They're looking for snacks to serve. They're yep. like, we need a snack that's handheld, yep. handheld, cheap, yep. enter the churro. Well, it's not cheap anymore, but all of those well, other things. It's cheap to make for Disney. Yes, I mean. okay, yes. 
literally <laughs> fried dough with some sugar. Yeah. Um. I I'm going Videopolis. Wow. Like definitely. And and I get you on some of these funny weird promos that Eisner did. Like yes, they are weird, but I mean. I lo- I just love me some Videopolis. So Michael's breaking the tie. Okay. Both uh both arguments are very compelling, but I'm going to base it on one thing and one thing alone. I've never heard of Videopolis. Whoa. I and I honestly feel like I'm quite the Disney fan. So I to think about seeing this bracket and this was the first time I've heard of this. I and it's very comparable to something that we do have in Orlando down at the Disney boardwalk resort called, um, Atlantic dance hall. Um, and there's a, also another similar place called jelly rolls. Huh? Mm. Yeah. They're both just kind of like these dance clubs where one of them has dueling pianos and the other one plays like old, old music videos where people are dancing and having a good time. But yeah. Uh, so I'm going to have to go with the promos on this. And it also, it just, I don't know. When I think of Michael Eisner, the Videopolis thing did seem very compelling because it was cheap and it was easy to install, which is very Eisner. Sure. But at the same time, I think when I think, when I think of the best Michael, like Michael Eisner stuff, it's how can I take a small idea but let it build upon itself. And I think the in-park promotions did that. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite things is the cake castle. You <laughs> see him going up in front of the castle before park opening one day. He's like, you know what? We're going to take this and we're going to make it a cake. <laughs> Imagine he was looking at him dumbfounded. And he's like, get it done and get it done cheaply. And, you know, we still talk about that today, whether you love it or hate it. It's something we talk about yeah. all the time. So sure. uh, yeah, in part promotions, it is. You, sure. uh, if you were a 21 year old in the, in the nineties, you may have come across what was called Videopolis East, Michael, because uh, that was a club based on the one in Anaheim, but it was featured in pleasure Island where we will be talking about that in a little bit here. But yeah, Videopolis was a gem. Go look at some videos on it because what a what a concept by Michael Eisner. Apologies to anybody that's <laughs> disappointed by that. All right, let's move on to the next matchup. It's number four, Disney Stores versus number 13, Disneyland's 30th anniversary. Uh, Kyle, you're going to have to help me on both of these because yeah. I don't really know what either of these... I mean, I know what a Disney store is, but right. I don't have any factoids. So the Disney stores came out of the fact that Disney only licensed their merch in which they were making about 6% of the total sales uh, revenue off of. And when they were kind of thinking about what merch in the parks look like, uh, they were like, why don't we also have merch outside of the parks that we own and make all the revenue on as opposed to just skimming the 6% off the top from your local, you know, Target or JCPenney or whatever. So they put this dude who was in charge of business development, his name is Steve Burke, in charge of like, hey, we want to open Disney stores and you're going to be the guy that figures out how we do it. And so Eisner was like, 
we we need to test this out. And they did so in Glendale at the Glendale Galleria, whereas they used for everything. They put in the first ESPN store there. They put they planned to put like a Disney Quest there, but they instead used um, Disney stores, the first one there and ended up being so successful that they expanded until it reached 749 stores worldwide in 1997. That's what it peaked at. Um, a fun fact about it was that they sold it off in 2004 to the children's place. So they went back to the licensing and said, here you go. Disney stores are you children's place. Uh, and then children's pr- place went bankrupt. And so Disney had to buy it back. And then they changed the name of the Disney store in New York City to World of Disney so that it was more associated with the parks arm of the company and not the consumer products arm of the company where there was less money. And that's why in like 2017, they started closing all of their stores. So that's why not many of them exist now, except for the big World of Disney stores. But basically, they saw, once again, an opportunity to expand and they did it. And uh, Disneyland's 30th anniversary, I don't even know what he did for that. Oh, baby. Let me tell you about this promotion. 50th anniversary, right? Disneyland, they had the parade. They did the like, oh, we're going to paint some of the attractions gold. And it's going to be so classy and so wonderful. And to me, that was peak park anniversary celebration. Michael Eisner said, put a big gift machine in front of the front gates and every multiple of 30, they're going to win something, whether mm. it was like a T-shirt or a car, like whatever the gift giving the gift giver extraordinaire decided to give you. That's what you would get. So it was this big like clock thing uh, mm. that had a countdown as to like every time somebody went through the turnstile, you would see it and every 30 guests would win some sort of prize. Recently, there was somebody that tried to redeem the tickets that they won during this promotion and there was a big stink about it and Disney wasn't going to honor it. And then the LA times wrote an article about it and then they ended up honoring it. I don't know why they didn't just here's the, your hundred dollar ticket, like go spend that in merch and we'll just call it even, you know, but they did that promotion. They brought back for the first time the main street electrical parade. So here's the MSEP showing up. Uh, for the first time uh, as a revival, the debut of Videopolis happened during this year and in honor of this year. So Videopolis strikes again. Uh, but the the biggest thing was the fact that like to get people to come recognize that this park that up until this time people didn't care about uh, was celebrating an important milestone by putting a massive gift machine in front is just it's just what Eisner brain does. Uh, and so, yeah, that that was the 30th, really, is that they gave gifts out to the 30th person, every 30th person, and uh, people are still redeeming it to this day. Awesome. Um, yeah, so great summaries. Thank you, Kyle. I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize for my ignorance on those <laughs> topics. Um, yeah, so... So one of the things that I like to think about when I think of the Eisner tenure is just, um, and we'll talk about uh, Disney quest in the next matchup, but it's this idea that he was trying to create new ways for the fans 
and just the general public to interact with the brand. Yeah. Um, and you call, you call them touch points if you want to, but I really don't like marketing language. Um, <laughs> Not on know, this like, podcast. No, we're going to leave that off. We're going to leave that off the clock. Um, the McDonald's deal. Great example. You know, like you have uh, going about your day, you want to get a hamburger and boom, Disney's in my face. Boom. Mickey's in your happy meal. Sorry Mickey, about Mickey, it. Mickey, Mickey is inside my happy meal. Emperor <laughs> Cusco is next to my French fries. <laughs> Um, like I said, we'll talk about Disney Quest a little bit later, but Disney Stores is another example of this. The idea that you are walking down the mall, maybe you're, you know, looking for new boyfriend, new girlfriend. Sure. Just chilling. This was this was peak mall, peak mall era in the world. Yeah. Hopping. It's a totally tubular place to be, everyone. <laughs> So what are we gonna do? Let's check out the Disney store. Yeah. See what they let's check out those Hercules toys. Let's check out that stuffed Mickey Mouse, little Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and if you for whatever reason hadn't been to the Disney parks, these stores kind of served as like a preview center for you because these weren't mall stores. These were like themed stores that featured attractions and things to do inside. You had little tiny like pirate ships yes. inside that you had Disney movies playing in a little section for story time. Imagine, story imagine time. princesses coming. Imagine in. your day going like revolving around what time the story time happens at the Disney store at your local mall. It would be freaking awesome. I mean, honestly, it was probably used as a babysitting uh, tool for parents that were doing shopping in the mall. But you're probably right. But I mean, I like. Yeah, the, the the vending machine thing does sound really weird. And like, yes, Michael Eisner, Mr. Weird Ideas. But at the same time, Michael Eisner took Disney from being a dead company. Yeah. Dead in the day, DOA, dead on arrival. Uh-huh. To being the biggest company ever conceived by man. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this idea of the Disney stores... Uh, taking their merch, merch game to the next level, I think is, is very quintessential Eisner um, on top of it, just being a great uh, business move, even though it eventually did go under. Um, I just, I like the idea of being able to interact with Disney in your local market. Uh, th- I mean, that was something I did when I lived in New York. If uh-huh. I was feeling like really sad or having a bad day, Times square, baby time, Times square's the worst. But if you can like, during the pandemic, like right when retail opened up again, I would cruise down to the Disney store weekly and just like listen to the music, check out the mugs, check out the Christmas ornaments. Yeah. See what kind of, see what they got, you know? Yeah. It's great. Like you said, it's, it's a little preview center for the Disney parks. And I like that. I'm advancing the Disney store. Can I name some of the prizes that you could win? At Disneyland's 30th. Please, please do. Here are some examples of the smaller prizes. So every 30th person gets a prize, but of course they're not going to give out, you know, annual pass to every 30th person. They got it. You're going to get a prize, but it might be a little smaller. Here are some of them. You could get a uh, a free drink at the Orange Juice Bar. That's a prize for one of the, uh, some of the 30th guests in line, which Disneyland at the time said that's a winner every minute. Which, all right, weird flex, mm-hmm. but here you are. Disneyland popcorn is another one that you could win if you're one of the multiples of 30. 
a Disneyland souvenir pin, which honestly, where is that? I'm, I'm about to go on eBay and see what these pins look like because they apparently featured Disneyland's different lands. Uh, and then some of the big ones. A Disneyland unlimited use passport. So an annual pass, which you had a one in 30 chance of winning, apparently. So of the 30, every 30th, every 30 of those 30s, you could possibly win a passport. Uh, a Mickey and Minnie 20 inch plush toy collection, which you had a one in 300 chance of winning. So you had a better chance at winning an annual pass than you had of a plush, a Mickey mini plush combo. A Disneyland 30th anniversary commemorative wristwatch, which you had a one in 3,000th chance of winning. Uh, I see those on eBay all the time. They're, they're pretty cheap. You can go get one if you want one. A 1985 Chevrolet Cavalier. One in 30,000th chance. A 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra. A one in 300,000th chance. Those two cars. Fairly certain they don't exist anymore. And there you were getting them if you were one of the lucky winners in line for Disneyland over the what they called the hottest summer ever. A Buick Century. One in 300,000th chance. A Pontiac Sunbird. 1985. Three three years old, Pontiac. No, I lied. It's the newest one. This is 85. Pontiac Sunbird. And then uh, the one, the grand prize, that one in every three million guests we're going to get was a 1985 Cadillac DeVille valued at $25,000. Uh, the promotion <laughs> material is fantastic. The Disneyland 30 years logo is iconic. I love it a lot. Uh, but I, I think that the winner here is definitely the Disney stores. It is money left on the table. And they, were, they own that stuff already. It's not like they had to do much else other than like find some sort of cheap factory to make this stuff. And then I think it also was part of like Eisner's Disney decade mantra of expanding, taking over the 90s and making it all about Disney. What better place in the 90s to do that? then show up in malls where people were shopping, getting, getting their social lives on. So I, uh, I agree. Disney stores for sure. Michael, any issue there? Not at all. It's definitely the Disney stores. We'll probably talk more about that later on, but the, Oh my gosh, I was just cracking up at those prizes. <laughs> I, I just cannot even imagine being like a normal person walking into the park with my family and like this like bell or alarm goes off like ding 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 you're a winner oh man every minute apparently like they just pull over this like spinning wheel or something and take it and it's like you want a brand new car (laughs) and you get all excited and you find out it's a 1985 Pontiac (laughs) Pontiac Sunbird. That's like today you roll up and it's like, all right, let's spin the wheel. You've won a 2022 Nissan Leaf. All right, come on. EV. Enjoy. Enjoy your your small, your small car. That you just won from Disneyland. And in this day and age, it would have Minnie Mouse dots on it. So you're shit out of luck there. Now, if like right. now, if all the cars were like Disney themed, that would be tight. Like give me a goofmobile. Like, like a Cadillac Cruella DeVille. Okay. Give me a straight <laughs> up a literal lightning McQueen. 
Yes. You're gonna drive the character car out DCA as your as your prize. Oh, I'm sorry. You've been awarded a tomater. <laughs> oh gosh. All right, let's move on here to the next matchups. Number five, Disney Vault. Number 12, Disney Quest. The Disney Vault, we all know it. If you're listening to this podcast, you know what the Disney Vault is. Basically, Disney was not down at the time to release their films to VHS when VHS had first come to play. And that's because they were releasing their movies theatrically like every six to seven years, uh, they would show, you know, Alice in Wonderland over and over again every seven years back to theaters. And that's how they were making a lot of their money. So some of the flops like Bambi, like Pinocchio, when they first came out, were gaining popularity later on in these theatrical releases. A lot of it was because of nostalgia. Like the movies themselves weren't audience loved at the time. But if you were a kid seeing it for the first time in the 40s, and then you're showing it to your kids in the 60s, then there's going to be some love there just by nostalgia. And that's how these things started becoming quote unquote classics, or at least that's how the Disney company branded them. And so once VHS has showed up, the company was like, yo, we got to get into this VHS game. And they're like, uh, that might cannibalize our entire you know theatrical release thing, but we'll go ahead and we'll give it a shot. And so the first VHS release was Robin Hood, 1984. This is right after Eisner shows up. Uh, and right after that was Pinocchio. The price for VHS for, these, for one of these movies was $79.95 in 1984, which is about $225 what? today. Oh and, and the reason why they did that was because Eisner didn't want to be out the game. So he unlocked the vault or perceived vault until it was before it was branded the vault. Let these two out and said, we're going to mark them up so high that only uh, video stores can afford them. And so we'll make money off of multiple rentals as opposed to the consumer buying it and then never giving us money to see it again. But after a while, they started seeing that like other companies weren't having that issue. So the holiday season of 1985, they re-released Robin Hood Pinocchio for $30 and it took off. So they went into this model of every six to seven years, a film would come out into theaters again. So you would see Snow White in 1986. The next year, Snow White would come out on VHS for a limited time before it went, quote unquote, back into the vault. That vault language stuck with them up until basically Disney+. Plus. And yeah. so in order to continue to resell this idea of like back into the vault, they started branding the re-releases out of the vault. So this time, Pinocchio's third time out the vault is now part of the Diamond Collection. <laughs> oh, did you have the classics Pinocchio? Well, this is the Diamond Pinocchio. And the only difference is that we have about two minutes extra at the end of the VHS of a, a making of, but it's only two minutes. So we didn't really have to do a ton. Then once you get to the Blu-ray and DVD portion of the vault, that's where 
they started adding a lot more of the extras. But even those prices were crazy. Even those went up to about $40 to today's money, which is quite a bit to pay for, for a DVD. So uh, Little Mermaid was the first film that came out in theaters for the first time and then was immediately released uh, on VHS afterwards. And they saw that it made so much money that they're, that's now the model. Things are gonna, the movies are gonna come out and instead of going directly into the vault, they're gonna go directly into VHS and then into the vault and then you'll see them about 10 years later. That's the Disney vault. That's the marketing scheme. We've all been scammed for a very long time. It is bonkers that people have been collecting these films as if the collections are worth anything because it's really just Disney gatekeeping. And then they release Disney Plus and oops, joke's on you. We can now watch most of these movies anytime we want for our five bucks a month or whatever they're charging us these days. It's up against Disney Quest. And Chris, I feel like you have a better foundational knowledge of Disney Quest than I do. So I'm going to let you take this one. Disney Quest was such an idea that was ahead of its time. But at the same time was a terrible idea because it's like Tomorrowland where the technology will always be moving faster than the concept. So basically um, it was kind of an, an up-leveled arcade uh, to begrudgingly (laughs) use another marketing term, but like, uh, you know, Chuck E. Cheese was, was a big gigantic uh, success that was created by the same guy who created the Atari company. Sure. Um, And so the Sega company was kicking around this idea. Um, and I believe they originally went to DreamWorks um, and then eventually went to Disney um, with this this concept of like creating some type of home, uh, not home, like a, like a regional arcade center sort of. Um, right. And that's kind of where the idea of Disney Quest was birthed out of. Um, and they built the flagship location in Orlando that I did go to. Um, and there were some really cool uh, very like ahead of its time technologies in there. The the big draw was the virtual reality. And I think I've said this on the podcast before where uh, it was, I don't really even remember what the game was, but it was some type of like sword fighting, like lightsaber before Star Wars was in the mix. Uh, yeah. And you, you put this giant headset on and it was one of the worst smells I've ever <laughs> smelled in my whole life. It was like, I think it was the foam that was maybe on the headset, but it literally smelled like someone spread their ass cheeks like in my face and I just <laughs> sniffed it. It you was know what so I, bad. You know what I forgot to mention at the at the very top of the show is the fact that we have a brand new theme song for this, for our Mouse Madness show and one of the bits that is in the brand new theme song, which if you're a part of Jerry's gang, you've already heard because we dropped it on Patreon already. So go to Patreon and listen to the theme song uh, that was produced by my brother. Now we actually own a theme song as opposed to ripped one from SoundCloud. But incorporated in the theme song is Chris talking about how Hades is probably the stinkiest costume ever. Now, do you think that Hades costume smelled a little bit like this Disney Quest headset? Yeah, probably. I think I think mold. I think mold is a factor that's in that smell as well. It kind of had that sharpness to it that maybe like a cheese has as well. It was just so unforgettably disgusting that like my brain, it's still baked into my brain. Oh my goodness. Um, but 
uh, the VR experience was was somewhat cool. Yeah. Um, there was also this really cool Buzz Lightyear game, um, and I think it was called Astro Blasters actually. Um, it, and it was the original Astro Blasters. And it was like, you drove these little like bumper cart type things that had like a cage around them and they shot like, uh, cherry balls out <laughs> of the, uh, that's what those are called, right? Cherry ball, the little I, red playground. I ball? never yeah. heard a name Michael for those, knows. but I guess so. never heard of a cherry ball. No. Um, and then you just like shot them at the other people that were driving around. It Amazing. was kind of like, it was like you were playing a little tank game. Uh, but the best game was this Pirates of the Caribbean game that was basically, they used the same tech that's in Midway Mania, where there were like little uh, cannon things that you pulled this cord, um, and you're on like a little mini pirate ship simulator with three other people, and you're like going from side to side <laughs> of the ship to like shoot sea monsters and stuff, and it was so much fun. Oh, um, gosh. But the majority of Disney quest was completely busted. Everything was broken and like corners of it just like had the lights off and, and you could tell there used to be a game there, but there isn't a game there anymore. Um, and it was just, it was just, I think really hard to keep up with all of the different moving parts that were inside. Uh, they attempted a location in Chicago, actually a Disney quest location. And it failed uh, and it went out of business very quickly. And then the D Disney quest idea was killed and eventually was replaced by the NBA experience. And I don't know if that's still there or what, but um, yeah, that's Disney quest. All right. Right on. Thanks for that. Yeah. It's such an interesting concept, especially around the like themed entertainment era of like themed restaurants and these Chuck E. Cheese things. And then you get like the, ultimate one in Disney quest that didn't quite see the success of as maybe some of the other ones. Uh, but I'm going to go with the Disney vault here. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because Michael was known for taking other people's ideas and often taking credit for them or just making them happen. Like a lot of the times these ideas weren't his and the vault is that Ron Miller had actually wanted to release these animated films on VHS call and call them Walt Disney classics. But the board didn't want to because the board was so connected to Walt who did not want these things to come out of the vault. He wanted them to continue to just only be theatrical one at a time as opposed to being accessible all of the time. And you see that with like Walt's vision on like sequels. And we'll talk about sequels later on as well. But when Eisner came, he's like, nah, we're going to do it. And not only are we going to do it, but we are going to create demand for them. And the marketing is always going to be get them before they're gone. Or the essence of the marketing is if you don't get it, your kid's going to miss out and they're going to be sad. If you watch any of the, the commercials, that is the theme of the messaging behind it. And it's genius because they, they're not, they ended up never being in the vault forever. They would always have a re-release. You would always be able to see them. They would just be repackaged and resold and it was successful. And it was a way to give money back into the failing animated studio without having to create anything new. It's genius. I'm going to go with the number five. The, um, the idea of the Disney vault is, is just a wacky one. You know, you defined it really well, but 
it's easy for me to forget how new Disney Plus is and that Disney Plus was debuted during the life of this podcast that I yeah. feel like is not very old. I mean, uh, I, one of the first brackets we did was best Disney animated movie and I had to go to Target to buy some yeah. beauty. <laughs> like, I had to stream from a Russian site some some of the animated films what was it called like tunes cartoons.xyz yeah. or something <laughs> yeah. we were watching cinderella like yeah yeah um it's insane uh how new disney plus really is and that there was a life before disney plus just cannot imagine um I know. yeah home video was such an instrumental part of the way again we all grew up with disney but I, I, I see the Disney Vault as a very sort of regressive approach to uh, marketing your film um, and even like marketing your company and your IPs. And when I think of Michael Eisner, I think, think of really radically progressive ideas to push the envelope and push the company forward. And I see the Disney Vault as, as sort of a timid approach to home video. And I don't hmm. really like that um, in this era. And, and I'll bring it back to sports, you know, this idea that we're going to kind of solve the blackout restriction problem and the approaching new fans and younger fans problem by putting one game on Peacock a year, you know, like these, these types of strategies just aren't going to move the needle. So the, the idea that we're going to put our, our movie out for, for one, you know, like a couple of months and then we'll put it, like, put it back. We don't want to make the, the powers that be mad. It, it really reminds me of that. And I don't like it very much. So I'm going with Disney quest. Uh, Michael, you are breaking the tie again. Oh, man, this one's tough. Uh, so like Chris, I was able to actually go to Disney Quest as a child. And oh, my gosh, it was back then. It was the coolest place ever. <laughs> like if you if you were on vacation and you weren't going to the parks or, you know, doing something else in Orlando, it's just that was the place to be. And Chris, so that was the Pirates of the Caribbean ride you're, or game you were talking about was Battle for Buccaneer Gold. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, what a name. And there was like a virtual jungle cruise, an oh, animation yeah, yeah. academy, Sid's create a toy. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, there was... There was something for everybody, but like Chris said, a lot of the stuff like was broken or closed a lot of the time. And the level of sanitation was probably despicable. <laughs> Absolutely gross. I mean, you're talking hundreds of kids. Right. With no regard for any kind of safety standards, sanitation standards. So... But that being said, it's got to be the Disney vault because it is the Michael Eisner move that like a lot of people know him for. And my family being one of them, the marketing ploy of bringing a movie out of the vault for a limited time was, all right, we got to go to the store and get this one. We got to add it to the collection. Because if not, then, you know, who knows when it's coming back. And if you went to my, uh, to my parents' house, there is a box full of nothing but old Disney VHS. And, <laughs> you know, 
one time or another, they were in the vault, they were out of the vault. We had to go get it right then and there, you know? So it, it's just, it's not that it's a good thing because I think it really is a negative marketing ploy when you come that, when it comes down to it. But when it comes to like most quintessential Michael Eisner move, it's right up his alley Hmm. and just kind of more so than the, the money ploy of a Disney type Chuck E. Cheese. That was Disney quest. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the Disney vault is going to, uh, move on to the next round. So let's hop over to the other side of the bracket where we have the number two, see the Disney Renaissance versus number 15. I'm going to Disney world. Oh, so let's ta- let's tackle the 15 seat. I'm going to Disney World first. Uh, if you lived in the U.S. during the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, I think it's still going today. Still going today. Actually, you have heard the phrase, I'm going to Disney World, spoken by an athlete or performer who just did something special. Yep. Um, it usually has to do with an ESPN or an ABC broadcast. And they say, Rob Gronkowski, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And he yep. goes, stop going to Disney World. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and that's it. <laughs> it's basically just kind of a synergy between uh, Disney Parks, the travel branch of the Disney Corporation, and the sports, the broadcasting. Yeah. Um, I, Kyle, I don't know if you have any like fun info on like backstory and how this was created. Yeah, I do actually. Wasn't created by Michael Eisner or the idea didn't even come from him. It came from his wife. They had dinner with the first people to ever fly around the world without stopping. This was in 1987. Um, Dick Rudin and uh, Gina Yeager. And Michael asked both of them, is like, all right, well, you've flown across the world. You've accomplished the pinnacle of your aspirations. What could you possibly do next? And Rudin jokingly said, well, I'm going to Disneyland. And Jane, Michael's wife, was like, that's a slogan right there. That, that is a great idea. Uh, and so from that, Michael brought it back to Disney and they formed a strategy in which they could connect their their sports synergy by making the MVP. Usually it's it was originally for the winning team quarterback, uh, but now it's turned into like whoever will just say it, usually like the team icon. Uh, but they paid the first winning quarterback to say this, who was Phil Sims, who played for the New York Giants. And Phil, instead of saying, I'm going to Disneyland, said, I'm going to Disney World. And that changed the slogan before he even got off the ground. So people now say, I'm going to Disney World. But every Super Bowl MVP who now says it uh, gets to decide which park they're going to have their Uh. parade in. So that's how it started. It started from a dinner conversation with the first people that flew around the world. And now it's become like a Super Bowl MVP promotional obligation that they get paid to say regardless if they want to. 
So I have a, I have a, I don't know if this is a hot take or if you agree with this or this is just total uh, speculation, conspiracy theory, and everything is completely documented and I'm just making stuff up. Yeah. Michael Eisner, one of his goals when he came in as CEO was to rehumanize the company, uh-huh. which was which was something that the Disney company had with Walt Disney at the helm. Right. The guy is on TV. Yep. The guy is walking around the park shaking hands with people. Yep. And in a lot of ways, Michael Eisner was trying to recreate that sort of personal yep. aspect of the company. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about him being the face of the Disney company during his tenure. Totally. But there, there are so many of these stories when Walt Disney was founding the company. Oh, I was driving... We were on the train and I said, Mortimer Mouse and my lovely wife, Lily, said, you should call him Mickey Mouse. Uh Oh, I was in the I was in the park with my two lovely daughters and I said, we should be able to have a place where we have fun together. And then Disneyland was born. I get so many of those vibes from Michael Eisner where Uh he's like he's like faking a similar sort of origin story for a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. That's a great example. They're like, oh, we were on a flight with some people and my lovely wife gave me this idea or um the other one is like his 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 kids oh well my kids played hockey and being the family man that i am i said we should have a movie about hockey and sure my son breck said there should be more exciting things to do at disneyland and hence videopolis was born and i'm just trying to do right by my family Uh um when it's like okay this maybe like was an intern or something and you're just stealing their ideas and taking credit for them to make it look better to the world yeah i I think that's a super fair assessment um regardless thank you for the recap um, the Disney Renaissance. This is the golden age of Disney animation. I mean, yeah. I would say, well, it's not literally the gold. The golden age of Disney animation was the original golden age of Disney animation, but it is the new golden age of Disney animation. Um, it is the time period where probably some of your favorite Disney animated movies came from. Starts with The Little Mermaid, includes movies such as Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Tarzan. Aladdin. Aladdin. Hercules. Hercules. Mulan. Probably ends with Journey to Atlantis. Yes. That's or Atlantis the Last Empire. Yes. Journey yes, to yes. Atlantis is a roller coaster <laughs> at SeaWorld San Diego. Um these are some good movies. And they're great musicals. So some of the the aspects that define this period are the recruitment of Broadway uh, personalities to write songs and lyrics, including yep. Alan Menken, Howard Ashman, Tim Rice, um, Elton John. Mm-hmm. It was coming off the heels of this period in Disney animation where they put up some not so good stuff. I mean, I guess it's a debate. It's a debate. Some people <laughs> be like, I love the great mouse detective. I love the rescuers down under. Yeah. Um, but even before that period was like the uh, late 60s stuff that was like 101 Dalmatians and um, uh, yeah. the Aristocats and stuff that was kind of a jungle book, stuff that was like recycling animation and Robin well, Hood. and One, like that's those the best that, animated film that's ever been created. Uh, but. but still, like there was a clear kind of like uh, change in the animation process and the production process with the death of Walt Disney. Yes. 
Um, and so this was kind of trying to regain the glory of the animation studio. Um, and you had Michael Eisner in there, you had Frank Wells in there, you had Jeffrey Katzenberg in there, uh, kind of steering the ship. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things where I don't know how much credit I want to give to Michael Eisner for this aspect of it. Um, because as you said at the very beginning of this, Michael Eisner is the ideas guy and uh, Frank Wells is the business guy. Uh-huh. There are so many people that go into these movies, directors, writers, lyricists, composers, uh, animators, ink and, and paint folks. I like... Sure, this this studio turnaround happened under Michael Eisner. I just don't know that uh, he should get credit as like this was a total Michael Eisner move was doing the Disney Renaissance stuff. Yeah, um, just because I don't think he was at the helm of it in the same way he was at in at the helm of some of these other things like parks expansions, like Disney Quest, like the Disney Vault. I don't know if you disagree with that, but no, I I mean I agree with with that wholeheartedly. I just didn't want to reveal that I did already because I'm, I'm putting that one down. It's I'm going to Disney world is the most quintessential here. Yeah. I, I think it was a great time for Disney animation, but yeah, I think when we're talking about quintessential Eisner, it's gotta be the weird, the weird synergy push. Yeah. And here's the thing is that as I have stated over and over again, Eisner was somebody who would take an idea and then find a way to make it happen. So if this story is correct, and Jane did come up with it, she didn't go to the studios and then gather marketing around and said, this is what we're going to do. Michael took what she said, took it to the company and said, this is what we're going to do. When he came into the studios, he hated animation. He didn't care about it. He moved the animators out of the Walt Disney Studios lot and put them into a separate building in Glendale. That's how much he cared about animation. The saving grace of this company, as far as animation goes, despite every animator working with him hating him, was Jeff- Jeffrey Katzenberg. Like, that's the dude who revived it. Eisner would come in and make them start thinking of ideas. A lot of them were recycled, on, left on the cutting room floor ideas, like the mermaid film, air quotes, as, as they call it. Like, that was a script and an idea that had been existing forever. Just Michael was like, okay. Do it, but do it for less than what you want to do it for. And so much so that he tried to cut a lot out of The Little Mermaid, some of the most lovable parts, including part of your world. He thought that was going to be too slow and that kids were going to lose interest. Like, he did not care about animation. Who cared about animation was folks like Howard Ashman. And he's really the one that transformed these stories. You can have some a, a story like, great mouse detective and have an adventure. But what really changed the game was bringing Broadway onto the animated screen. And that had nothing to do with Michael Eisner. What had a lot to do with Michael Eisner is inserting Disney in a place where it hadn't existed yet to try and get some brand awareness and bring in some new people. I'm going to Disney World is the most quintessential thing in this matchup. So we're moving it on. Michael, what do you think about the Disney Renaissance? Probably the most iconic part of the Disney company in the last 30 years hitting the deck. I was very confused until I heard all the explanations. And <laughs> then like a little light bulb went off and it's like, 
wow, they're right. Like <laughs> when like when you think of those films, I don't really think of Michael Eisner. I just know that he was the guy in charge. Right. So, but you know, the Alan Mankins, the Howard Ashmans, like th- those are the people that you really think of when when you think of like the Disney Renaissance era. So I definitely I, I think that I'm going to Disney World just it goes back to marketing and marketing and Michael Eisner just seem to go together. So makes sense. So that brings us to some more animation and the number seven direct to video sequels versus the number 10 media acquisitions, media acquisitions being like the ABC deal, the ESPN deal, which was kind of packaged together. Uh, direct to video sequels. Uh, can you guys name the first Disney sequel ever animated sequel ever? I want to say Little Mermaid 2. Okay. Just sequels, Uh, sequels ever. Oh, oh, like animated sequels ever. Doesn't have to be direct to VHS. Does it it have to be Disney? Has to be Disney. Yeah. Disney animated sequel ever. Uh, 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 Saludos Amigos. Michael, what you got? Uh, Bambi 2. Uh, Rescuers Down Under. Was the very That's, first animated uh, sequel. It was. They had I thought it created, that was too easy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was because like up until then, you had Ron Miller and Walt Disney as like the CEOs. And both of them, Walt Disney hated sequels. He was on record as saying he's never going to do another something. Uh, and yet there he goes doing every princess film and every fairy tale. Uh, and then you have Ron Miller who was like, well, my dead dad-in-law didn't like sequels, so I don't like them. And then Mike Eisner comes in and is like, Let's, why don't we just make sequel? Who has ideas? So he used to have these, uh, what he called gong show meetings, where he would bring anybody in the company show, could come yeah. to these meetings and pitch ideas. And if he hit the gong, that was the green light to start thinking about how they're going to make it happen. And somebody came in and said, what if we made the rescuers, but in Australia? And this is because at the same <laughs> time, Crocodile Dundee was at, the si- at, at its peak. And Michael went, dung, let's go do it. And boy, did they do it. Like instantly, they made it happen. It went to theaters. It absolutely flopped. And so while that was in production, they were making a lot of other sequels behind the scenes to all of our favorite hits, all of the the recent Disney Renaissance hits. And with the flop of the sequel to Rescuers, they moved the sequel making to a new studio that they founded called Disney Tunes to keep it off the Walt Disney Animated Studios brand. And those folks were making the sequels. And the reason why they were putting them out is because one, they were cheap to make because they didn't have to make them so that they looked good on a on a movie screen. They were going to be on VHS and the quality was awful. And two, because people are going to buy things that have their favorite characters on them and they need to see the continuation of Ariel. They need to see the continuation of Aladdin's adventures. And so the first big one that they released was the return of Jafar after Aladdin had come out and it made between 180 million to $200 million domestically a straight to VHS awful sequel made that much money. And that's where it took off. So that's, that's video sequels. One, Michael Eisner hated him, hated animation. He comes in, the renaissance starts happening. 
VHS re-releases of the films are, are taking off and they're doing very well. So what's what's left then to create cheaply done sequels to successes in theaters and release them straight to VHS along with the VHS of the actual film. It's just it's just a money making machine and people ate them up. I mean, one of Mandy's favorite Disney movies of all time is what? Bell's Enchanted Christmas. That was one of the straight to DV, or VHS sequels. So it, yeah, it worked. And Eisner saw it and he moved them from theatrical to VHS because he saw the success there. So it was a smart move and it made them a lot of money. Media acquisitions. Uh, Eisner actually worked for ABC before Paramount. And so he had a relationship over there. And so he was essentially concerned with the fact that his he was paying Fox to host his Disney afternoon TV block. And here he is being like, why don't we do it? <laughs> like, why are we paying somebody and, and or why are they paying us a licensing fee and making all the money off of ad revenue when we could just do it ourselves? And so ABC was in the middle of this corporate raid uh, of an era in corporate America where like Comcast wanted to buy Disney and all of these big mergers were happening. And so Michael used that as an opportunity to go after ABC, which then packaged up ESPN with it. And he saw that as now we're in the TV game. And that acquisition made Disney the largest media conglomerate that the world had ever seen. Like it owned so much media property, so much more than any other company ever did ever, which is crazy but not anymore because Disney, Disney's still doing it. They're just buying up everything. And here we begin with our acquisition strategies. Now, not quintessential Michael Eisner is a successful acquisition or a successful partnership because he went ahead and failed with many notable ones, one of them including Pixar, right? And so this was a success story that then breathed life into not only ABC, but now they can start producing live action content uh, with their TV series, which is uh, an area Michael Eisner was really well known for and really loved. Uh, but also they can get into sports, hence Mighty Ducks, Angels, they're, they're taking over everything. So that's kind of where the media you know, acquisition stuff uh, comes into the fold here. It also kind of feels like uh, you know, their focus of getting to a an older audience with some of their Disney promo. And put, like, you know, you can now host all of your Disneyland specials there. And the history of ABC with the Disney company just makes sense because that's what the sponsorship that Walt used to pay for Disneyland and all this stuff. So uh yeah, it, it's very quintessential Disney, but I think that the direct to DVD direct to video sequels was a a small investment for huge returns move that Eisner was always keeping his eye out for. So much so that he created a lesser than animation studio to make it happen and keep his pristine Walt Disney animation brand healthy. Uh, it's just that saving face. It's that that brand recognition that Eisner was known for. So I'm going to go with the number seven here. Um, before I move on, I would just like to take this opportunity to try and jinx uh, the second no-hitter of the night as Justin Verlander has a no-no through seven innings in Minnesota. 
Uh, totally okay. um, am a fan of Justin Verlander as a pitcher, but I hope he does not get this no-hitter. We'll see how that jinx works out. Um, I, I'm actually 100% with you, Kyle. Uh, the idea that uh, Disney growing as a media entity uh, is what I think of when I think of Bob Iger and not necessarily what I think of when I think of Michael Eisner as Interesting, a CEO. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm with you on the direct-to-video sequels. Uh, let's let's move that one along. Uh, Michael D, do you agree? 100%. Great. So let's move on to the next matchup. It's number three, the addition of thrill rides to Disney parks versus number 14, Pleasure Island. And this is a really, really good matchup. This is a great um, matchup. <laughs> Pleasure Island is one of those things that existed in the Disney of the past that I really wish I had the opportunity to experience. Videopolis, I think, would be a fun little thing to do, but Pleasure Island is like Videopolis on steroids. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about this is I get big family camp vibes from it. Ah. Uh, Kyle, you and me were adults counselors at family camp, and we know firsthand that when adults are on a family vacation, they want to take time to themselves as well. Yep. And most of the time, it involves copious alcohol consumption and yep. staying out until very early hours of the morning, binging on food that is unhealthy for them. Totally. Enter Disney's Pleasure Island. Uh, the... Uh, Disney, downtown Disney, Disney Springs, whatever, Buena Vista, Disney shopping district that we uh -huh. know today uh, predates Michael Eisner. However, he had the idea of creating this separate space called Pleasure Island that would be home to these adult uh, and teenage entertainment areas, uh, nightclubs, dance clubs, bars, restaurants. Um, a couple of the bars were... Um, open to children uh, with the accompaniment of an adult, which I think is really interesting. Um, but some of them were like 21 and up after a certain time or just all together. Um, I just think it's really cool. The idea of being able to go to Disney and getting the theming of Disney with your bar, with your nightclub. I think it would be so fun to experience. I would imagine it's probably very expensive from what I understand. The cover charge was $10 per yep. club, yep. <laughs> which, um, nowadays probably like fifty dollars per club <laughs> um if we're gonna scale with the way that the disney company has grown uh since then um but uh, if you want to check out like all of the different clubs that were at pleasure island i would encourage you to do some research there are a few videos about pleasure island on youtube and they're a very fun watch totally uh, for what I know, the idea of Pleasure Island was a Michael Eisner joint. However, the Imagineers were the ones that took the idea and ran with it. And this was an idea like Disney Quest that I believe was very ahead of its time because it did things that the current Jungle Cruise is trying to do. Create lore that doesn't exist anywhere else but within the Disney park space. Uh-huh. Uh, this, this Pleasure Island was conceived as a fictional... Uh, playground for billionaire philanthropist uh, Meriwether Pleasure, I think was the name Meriwether of Meriwether Adam Pleasure, yep. And he had all of these weird like buildings on Pleasure Island that eventually turned into nightclubs. Uh, so cool. So some of the standout nightclubs for me were, of course, the Adventurers Club, which was sort of a lounge area that included a lot of live en entertainment, like uh, themed comedy shows, puppetry, uh, tiki room style, like uh, immersive theming. It just looks so fun. And from what I understand, it was very beloved amongst Disney Parks fans in Florida. 
uh, one f- kind of, I mean, I'm a big country music fan. So like I would have loved to go to the neon armadillo, which was the country yes. club, uh, not country club, but the country themed nightclub <laughs> at pleasure Island. Um, and that's one of the ones that was a family club, family, uh, family friendly. bar slash yeah. Family friendly. Um, would have loved to check that out. Uh, ironically enough, it was replaced with a BET, a uh, black entertainment television themed yep. bar. Yep. Uh, so talk about a 180 on that one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it just looked like a super fun place to be. And it's another one of those things like Videopolis that I wish I had the opportunity to go with a bunch of friends, bar hop in Pleasure Island and just have a great time. I think, you know, the idea of the Disney adult that is kind of now so prominent today, uh, would have made Pleasure Island really thrive had it still been around today. So right. You're so right. Uh, the addition of thrill rides, uh, we kind of talked about Breck Eisner a little bit and him being so influential to the way that Michael Eisner saw the expansion of the Disney parks, adding more experiences that had more thrills, building more uh, theme parks, theming them to properties that were more appealing to uh, kids of all ages, older ages, and not just young families. Uh, I mean, like, I, I feel like I would advance Pleasure Island in almost any other of these matchups. Because mm. it is an idea that I love so much, and I do think it was so far ahead of its time. I, I really wish I could have gone there. But this edition of Thrill Rides is exactly what I think of when I think of Michael Eisner. It's Indiana Jones. It's the extraterrestrial alien encounter. Um, it's rocket rods. You know, all of these attractions that had varying levels of success, obviously. But it, it took Disney from being this place that families and little kids go to to being a place that truly has something for all ages. So I'm advancing the addition of thrill rides. The similarities between these two are that Eisner saw what other places were doing and he said, essentially, we need to do that here. And with Pleasure Island, there was Church Street in Orlando that was a similar vibe of like bars and restaurants and clubs that we're pulling a lot of the Disneyland Resort adults over to at night because Disneyland didn't have adult offerings. And so Pleasure Island was supposed to be that place for those adults. And it became so popular that Church Street became not popular. Like it, it took the business. It straight up did. Uh, it wasn't sustainable because it, it was themed as New Year's Eve every night. Every Crazy. night was New Year's Eve. Bonkers. Uh, so there was a countdown every single night. Imagine that. And so that I think the theming was fantastic, but maybe overly done to where it got played out too quickly. With the thrill seeking movement, I read an article from 1996, uh, this L.A. Times article where the Michael had sent this dude, a research engineer from Imagineering, Steve Elliott, around the world to just ride rides. And he came back and essentially said, here's what people like. Here's what we need to do. And one of those is a free fall ride that he rode at Six Flags Magic Mountain. And that's what spurred the idea to do Tower of Terror. So like, and that's now a staple of drop rides across the world is something like Tower of Terror. Uh, Not saying that like things that live on past Eisner are quintessential Eisner, but Eisner getting ideas and then forcing other people to make them happen is definitely quintessential Eisner. And it just happened to redefine what we think as Disney magic today. I'm going to go with the number three as well. 
Uh, Michael, what do you think about that? Definitely agree, but I'm right in the same boat with Chris here. I wish so badly that I could have experienced Pleasure Island myself. I remember as a child going to downtown Disney and seeing all of the lights. Yeah. Pleasure Island and like asking my mom, why can't we go there? <laughs> or saying, oh, well, that's for adults. Sorry, sweetie. And I like just looking up the list of the places like Neon Armadillo look lit. <laughs> and just, I don't know. It, it definitely, they need to bring it back. There we go. Save, I agree. Save your reputation. Bring it back. I agree. I wish that they were retheming the Anaheim downtown Disney that they're doing right now to just Pleasure Island. Just oh, bring out, bring back the neon nightclubs. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Instead, we're going mid-century, which I'll also accept. All right. Let's talk about this final. What was that? Just give us the 90s back. Yeah. Give, well, <laughs> they're in full swing giving us the 90s back. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this final matchup. It's the number six, Jim Henson and George Lucas partnerships versus the number 11 being the face of the company. And here is just no matchup. It's being the face of the company for sure. The George Lucas and Jim Henson partnerships were very important to the future of the company. Hence the park expansions across the world with Galaxy's Edge. But Jim Henson's family literally hated the fact that Disney acquired the Muppets so much so that Frank Oz stated in an interview a few years ago that he thinks that the dealings and the negotiations with Michael Eisner is what killed Jim Henson. Like, <laughs> like there's still animosity towards Disney for making this happen. And George Lucas's relationship with Eisner didn't, didn't form through Disney. Like they worked together at Paramount and, and Michael used that connection to bring George over. That's not very quintessential Michael. He used his connections, but he was also afraid to do so because he was afraid that they would dethrone him. So he kept his friends very far away from him, which is why he got rid of Katzenberger and he got rid of um, Michael Ovitz once Frank Wells passed away and he brought Michael Ovitz in and then, and then fired Michael Ovitz. Like He kept his enemies way closer than his friends so that partnership made a lot of sense and it did great things. It brought us Star Tours, which was part of the thrill ride stuff. But it's got to be him wanting to be the face of the company from bringing back the Sunday night, a wonderful world of Disney and him introducing every film to him being the face of park celebrations to his iconic, hi, I'm Maka Asna. Like it's, he's just, that's, that's who this man is. He wants to be the center of attention. That's what has to move on for me. Uh, I would just like to point out that on the second batter Justin Verlander faces since the B-Sox jinx, he has given up his no-hitter on There's a single no, to Giovanni Arcella. No no-hitters in this house. Absolutely not. Shout out to that one person who replied to you that one time about how jinxes aren't real. And I said, I've never not jinxed a no-hitter. So Yeah. <laughs> um. Kyle, I, I agree with you, uh, definitely. Um, with what you're saying about how these relationships really kind of were just a little precursor to what eventually would be Disney's relationship with these two creators. Um, we can talk about some of these uh, rides that came from the partnership when we talk about thrill rides next week because some of that is sort of baked into mm. there. Um, but I'm with you. 
being the face of the company. I mean, the fact that we have a Michael Eisner bracket speaks for itself. You know, like that is a perfect example of the way in which Michael Eisner was so much at the forefront of this company. Yeah. So we'll move the 11 seed on. Michael, do you agree with this final matchup? Oh, of course. I mean, we wouldn't have this bracket if he wasn't all about himself. (laughs) Very true. You're right. You're very correct. All right, folks, we've reached the end of this first round. Uh, We'll pick up next week in the Elite Eight. And that looks a little something like this. Number one seed Parks Expansions versus the number eight in Park Promos. A little park on park action there. Down the brackets, the number four Disney Stores versus the number five Disney Vault. Across the brackets, the number 15, I'm going to Disney World campaign versus the number seven directed video sequels uh, and rounding out our lead aids. The number three, additional thrill rides versus the number 11, becoming and being the face of the company. Michael, thank you so much for being our resident Michael on this discussion on the Disney Michael. We appreciate you and your insight and we look forward to having you back next time. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be the, um, the in-house Michael for the podcast. All right, everyone. Well, you know how to reach us. Do you have something to say about these Michael Eisner quintessential moves? Do you uh, have a bracket idea or would you like to hop on and be a co-host slash tiebreaker on Mouse Madness? Email us at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Discord. All of those channels are linked in the description of this podcast. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, head on over to patreon.com slash mousemadness where you can become a member of Jerry's gang at the $5 level. Till next time, folks, what we're going to do next is we're going to Disney World. (laughs) 